Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Kathy Sheridan, and we have a very special episode lined up for you today. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud and Stitcher, and you can always find us on irishtimes.com. Now, last January, we emailed Ambassador Samantha Power, inviting her to come on the Women's Podcast. And I'm delighted to tell you that here she is. Our conversation went to so many areas. We talked about Trump, of course, about reproductive rights, Syria, Bosnia and so much more. But as she was getting settled, she talked about preparing for the Late Late Show. Listen to this. My mother's here. And so just to show you, I'm not above vanity. I was wearing what I'd been wearing on the plane and to matter, and I said, I think this is fine. I'm so tired. I said, I think this is fine. My mother, you know, who would have grown up like on the late, late show, so it would have been yeah. a bigger deal. You know, she was more aware. She's like, you know, I think, I think maybe you could spruce up a little bit. <laughs> so she came up to my room and I had a, a dress, a nice dress, which I wore. And then I put on my heels and she said, where are your tights? And I said, oh, I didn't bring any tights. I don't have tights. It was late. We were about to rush off. She said, those legs, those Irish legs. <laughs> so I got there and I got to makeup and they put... Bronze makeup on my <gasps> on your legs. frigging legs, yeah, yeah, because totally. It's wonderful and a yeah. sign of what women have to do. <laughs> they put makeup on my. They had the same reaction my mother did to my lovely pale Irish legs because I was wearing a black dress and black heels, and then I thought my legs looked, you know, lovely. strong and porcelain. healthy and vibrant porcelain. So my daughter says creamy, um, but anyway. I think you're really going to enjoy the rest of our conversation. I began by asking her about her memories of her Irish childhood. I was out the other night with a group of my Mount Anvil school mates, and I remember a few of them and, you know, wild games. I was a bit of an organizer and a rabble-rouser, and, you know, we had these little badges that were called Super Friends. We had a little club called the Super Friends Club. I remember I spent a lot of time at a very particular pub in Dublin that was my father's haunt called Hardigan's. So I read the entire Enid Blyton, Famous Five, Secret Seven, the whole corpus in the basement of Hardigan's pub um, with a kind of faint light that luckily didn't cost me my eyesight. Tell me you had a glass of lemonade and a packet of crisps. Uh, Yeah, I had crisps. I had toasties, I think, if I remember. Um, Fanta was my, especially my brother had Coke with Smarties in, in it, which is the grossest thing I can think of but I really remember a lot I mean nine now that I have kids nine is not six you know it is different and school I was very into I was into sport I played you know I was just learning field hockey I was hated Irish the language but I was okay at it I, I was a you know I'd have been a serious student then I actually when I got to America I used to tell people years later that I'm still dining out on my Mount Anvil education you know because of the amount we read here the amount we learned, the kind of discipline. Uh, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it kind of carried me forward through 
America's public schools, which aren't the best. You know, they're, they're the ones I went to were decent, but they compared to a school like Mount Anvil, there's no, no, no. So you were a bookish comparison. little girl. You were always reading books here, and then when I got to America, I got kind of swept away by the lights and the bigness and the sport and the. So I was a worse reader by a long shot when, when I got to America. But here, with the three channels on the TV, you know, there wasn't. Your options weren't infinite. Were you always into current affairs? I mean, even no, as, as a young one, all. were you no. reading newspapers? No, no not, not at all. all. No, no, I was a late-breaking, um, very, very late-breaking person, political person. I think going, I went to Yale University, which is, uh, I think even there, I didn't know the the politics or the a kind of progressive sensibility was, was seeping in. You know, mom and my stepfather, Eddie, would have been, not at that time subscribers to the New York Times, you know, which would be the very political world affairs kind of newspaper. They would have subscribed to Time Magazine. We would have had that once a week. They they would have liked Reagan a lot, uh, you know, just as a not for his politics even, not even probably fully understanding it, but just as a charismatic, funny, you know, avuncular, you know, kind of father won't, of the won't nation. Do much harm. Yeah, who seemed to, probably to them harmless, yeah. but. No, it was, we, we were, it was late that I think I discovered politics. So tell me about your mother. She took off to the States with two small children. Yes, so it seems. <laughs> so, so it seems. <laughs> so it seems. Yes, she did. She, she, uh, her marriage to my dad was not working. This isn't a place then that was easy to, to split up in. They, you know, there was no divorce for a long time thereafter. She was very professionally driven, and driven in sport. She was an amazing athlete. She had been a field hockey player, a squash player, tennis player. Um, but just everything she did, she did with great single-mindedness um, and has always been very inspiring to me. But she decided she's going to go. She's a kidney doctor. She's going to go and get the best kind of state-of-the-art kidney training. And she was with a – she had met a Dublin doctor who also had a family, so they, in effect, ran away together, I guess you'd say. Uh, he's my stepfather. They're still together all this these years later. Yeah, so it kind of redeems it on one level, although it wasn't easy for anyone involved, that's for sure. Um, so it's been nice, actually, on this trip to have the Burke family, his kids, who I adore, uh, my own, the Power family, my father's family, and then, of course, my mother's family, all gathered at the abbey <laughs> no hard feelings uh you know time is time heals i hope it feels like anyway complicated it was complicated complicated indeed um i was going to ask you about about uh, when you got to the states and about harvard and how you managed without without that that you know a lot of people you talk to they say oh there were always political conversations around the table we were very conscious from an early age but what was it what tipped you over was it going to harvard or what was it I f- it's very hard. I can I can give you like I can draw a dotted line to a bunch of different things, but as you know in your own life, what actually is catching and what isn't is it's it's you never know. Um one of the stories I told at the Abbey on this trip was that at a Cork train station when I was visiting my mother's family one summer after, you know, because we were coming back during the summers, um, I my uncle picked up a copy of Bob Geldof's "Is That It?" That's biography, and I remember reading that and just like just thinking that was wow. I mean, to pull something like that off, and um, I read it in two sittings. I think on the train ride and one subsequent sitting. 
because uh, he introduced me last night, so and I'd never met him before, so it was kind of surreal. But you know, for all I know, is seeing a bunch of rock stars like singing music at Christmas and trying to raise money for a family. Like I thought that was generous and moving. I mean, I never hear that song without like just getting blown away. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was reading the book. Maybe it was um, you know going to Yale and being surrounded by people who were uh, standing up for you know, LGBT rights, which I'd never, I'd gone to high school in Georgia. Like that, it wasn't a pro, there, there, were no, there was no advocacy of that kind. People would have ducked if they had a different sexuality or they'd have been afraid of, you know, kind of rearing their heads. Although I did have gay friends in, in high school, but the seminal, you know, kind of trigger that I think was, was at least the biggest factor was I wanted to be a sportscaster because I continued from when I moved to America you know, what I had been like when I was in Ireland. I was very sporty. I was not good enough to be, the you know, a, a, a top-flight university basketball player, which would have been my sport. Um, but I got into doing the play-by-play on the radio uh, and doing interviews, like sports interviews. There was a sports talk show that I did, and so I thought that would be great to to get to spend a life doing what you love and, and watching sports. Like, what could be wrong with that? And my summer after my first year in in university, I was interning at the CBS, our big network's sports uh, affiliate, basically news affiliate, and I was cutting the highlights for the evening news, the baseball highlights, basically, just watching endlessly these baseball games and then trying to get the highlights and stick them in a little uh, reel for for the evening news. And on the feed, the CBS feed, next to where I was watching the Braves game, came the footage from Tiananmen. And that what was so moving about that it was it was uncut footage, and I got to Tiananmen see Tiananmen Square, Tiananmen Square in 1989, yes. where young people were coming out in the in the tens of thousands and gathering in you know in support of democracy. And that and iconic image of the young students standing in front of the in tank. front of the tank yeah. that that came later, like a few days later at least. But but at the time it was more. I got to see a bit of the joy because before mm. the crackdown. And again, like I was just swept away by the, what these students were doing. And then kind of in this little glass booth where I had my clipboard to take notes on the Braves game, suddenly the tanks came rolling in and these, the tumult, the cameras like flying. And then the feed went dead at a certain point, just went black. And I was like, whoa. And so I sort of looked at my clipboard and I thought this doesn't feel like this is the most important thing I could be doing. But But I still had no skills. I hadn't really been as serious a student as I as I should have been given all the opportunities I had at Yale but from that moment when I went back to campus the following September I really dug into my studies in a different kind of way I was I was very motivated by that what were you studying history right so that was very apt yeah you have the overview yeah yes um you actually interestingly had no you didn't you had no five-year goal no no uh Lenin like five year plan no um, no, I always went by smell, you know, just if something sounded good, if it felt like I could grow, learn something, or be quote unquote cool, uh, I tended to just follow my nose, and some of the decisions I made really at the time, like which now look completely Machiavellian and ingenious at the time, were really not obvious. You know, I'd gone to Yale. I I got a great job in Washington right after I graduated, because by then I was interested in foreign policy. 
and I could have stayed there and I was making all these connections and grow, and and yet what I worked on when I was in Washington was what was happening in the Balkans and I just could feel that I'd leveled off in terms of how much I could learn from far away so I decided okay I'm going to go over there and I'm going to become a freelance correspondent and you know again because I didn't have a world of connections I knew one woman who's you know was the ended up becoming the um, maid of honor in my wedding is my best friend, but she she took me under her wing. But I didn't know her at the time. I'd met her once, and um, so just let's get this straight. Sure. You flew to Bosnia. I flew to Croatia. You flew to Croatia. Yeah, uh, with your notebooks, basically, possibly it, a, with the technology at the time. I had a laptop that was about as heavy as this table. I'll uh, yeah, no cell um, phones or anything like that. No cell phones. No contacts. I had this one, Just this one, this woman. one woman, yeah, yeah, and she. But again, she, she's a great woman. <laughs> so she must have been. She's a great woman, Laura. And so did you follow her around, or how did this work? She, she, yeah, basically, she, she was like, "Come with me. We'll go to the press briefing. You know, come with me. We'll go to Bosnia. I'll drive." I'm like, "Damn straight, you'll drive." You know, I don't know where the mines are and all this. And and uh, but, but what's interesting about it is it's sort of. A little bit of a sisterhood already. Actually, all my closest friends, even to this day, really uh, come from that period. They're these women who all gravitated to Bosnia in the in the height of the war. And one is at the ACLU, you know, suing Trump. Another is writing a book about Joseph Kony, the African warlord. Laura, my, my dear friend, is a Human Rights Watch uh, documenting U.S. abuses in the counterterror fight. You know, so everybody's kind of gone off to to lodge their uh, young, youthful outrage somewhere else now. It's, it's, it's cool. That was an extraordinary thing to do. How long did you last in, in Bosnia? I was about two and a half years, yeah. Two and a half years? Yeah, but in and out, again, Bosnia, Croatia, but yeah, very much, in 95 especially, which was very rough. a rough year uh, mm. in, in Bosnia. But it, while I wouldn't do it now that I have kids, anything like that, and, and war has changed a lot in that then, while it was very dangerous it was kind of wrong place, wrong time danger, whereas now in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, journalists are the target. I mean, we're women, Western women, in societies where you have a terrorist presence, you know, are extremely vulnerable. That's so, right. I remember back then when you see how innocent it was, you could drive around yeah, in a car, exactly. get with TV written on yeah, the press. Yeah, as if it mattered. Yeah. I, it kind of did. It did matter. Yeah. <laughs> For a you're while. right. No, no, you're right. Yes. Um, so your mother um, came, became aware of this how? Oh, me being in Bosnia? Yeah, yes. Eddie was, Eddie, my stepfather, conspired with me because when I went initially, I said, I'll just go to Croatia, which by then had kind of had its war, its big war. It would have another one a couple years later, which I covered. But but at the time, it was relatively calm, relatively peaceful. And then once Laura, my friend, you know, said, you can do this, you know, and, and once I had these numbers of publications to call in the U.S. and they were willing to take my, what was back then, the collect phone call. Do you remember collect yes, collect calls? Reverse charges. Reverse charges, they call yes. it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I was able to reverse the charges. What more could I want? And um, so I started going in, but I all my clips, you know, my articles would come to the, my parents' home because I didn't have an address. I was now living in the in the Balkans. And Eddie would intercept the clips, and any time there was a Bosnia byline, he would stow it away so that my mother wouldn't, you know, wouldn't know. But then I started doing radio, where I'd say, you know, this is Samantha Power reporting live from Sarajevo. And then my mother's in the car, like, no! Because the radio is, you know, in the States, 
even to this day, NPR would be the, you know, RTE equivalent or the, you know, the, the drive time radio that you that everybody would kind of hear on the way to work. So I didn't cover my tracks as well as I could have, I guess. Right. So you came back from Bosnia. Yeah. Went to and, law and school. Yeah. It's kind of hard, really, to settle down after that and to make everything seem important. But you man, you, you chose to do, do law because, I presume, you wanted... I thought it would a be a good weapon. It would be a weapon. Yes. You know, I thought journalism, you know, even though I'd only been a freelancer or stringer, um, I was in the end, I was the stringer for The Economist, for The Washington Post, like really amazing publications. And I thought to myself, you know, when I go back and go work, I could go work, you know, and cover school boards, you know, things that really matter in American communities refine the craft. I'd learned a ton about how to write and how to write quickly, which was, has proven very important in politics and in other things. But but I, I thought, you know, even if I go dig in, do the local paper thing, and then at the pinnacle of my career, I'll be doing exactly this. I'll be, if I'm lucky, I mean, very lucky, I'd have to get a lot of breaks, I'll be the correspondent for The Economist, but I'll have health insurance. <laughs> like, that'll be the only difference, you know. I, it'll feel like this, because my expenses were paid by then. I was, I loved it, but it wasn't, it didn't feel quite enough. I, I, and I was, I, I had a, a, clearly then, without, again, it stuck up on me, but I had a, an activist soul in that I was always thinking about, oh, I wonder who's reading my article in the government. <laughs> you know, I wonder what they're doing with my article. You know, now that I've been in the government, I know, you know, they're, they're it, blasting through it if you're lucky, and then it's landing in some pile somewhere. I mean, they're not doing anything with it, but... You sense there is a bit of a thing about being a bystander as a journalist. I, th- I found it hard by the last summer that I was in, in Bosnia, when we would go you know, let's say there's a playground massacre or something horrific and you'd go and you talk to the parents of these kids and and you have I, I felt I had nothing to offer these people. I mean, you know, I'm at the beginning of the war you'd say, I'm gonna tell your story and there's a chance in me telling your story that somebody may be moved by that, may do something about it. but by the end, like they had no faith that anybody was ever gonna come and and rescue them. And so I think that feeling of I want to help these these poor people who've lost, you know, everything that matters to them. I would have just loved to have been in a position to to, to deliver something, to be able to to do something. So I think that feeling, particularly toward the end when they started, also they gave up too. You know, like we we went from that, you know, being invited into people's homes, sit down, have your Turkish coffee, to at the end, you know, more and more people slamming the door in our faces, just saying, you're just a reminder to me of the impotence. Because the, because the press was known to, because we were living among the people, we were pretty sympathetic to what was being done to them. And they knew that, and they knew, and we had put ourselves in a situation that was not the same as theirs, because we could leave and they never could. I mean, they were literally trapped, so we n- never were confused about whether we were the same. But by the same token, we were living in difficult circumstances beside them in order to tell their stories. But at a certain point, they just were like, you're, you're just, you're just, you're Americans, you can leave, leave. Because like, it, it's not achieving anything for us. Now, I then left and went to law school. And as I was driving, I remember like it was yesterday, I was driving my stuff from New York, where my mother and stepfather then lived, uh, from Brooklyn, to Boston, where I was about to attend law school, 
with like a 24-hour turnaround and classic like I landed and then classes started in a day and the chaos and I was in this rider truck and I had like two bags but the they were sloshing back and forth in the back of the rider truck and as I was driving I heard that Clinton had decided to intervene like basically the bombers had started driving in and and I hear Ted Clark was his name I mean like it was yesterday on NPR saying you know, yes, NATO bombers have been dispatched to Sarajevo, and and they've intervened. And within maybe two weeks, the the war had effectively ended. I mean, these people had been rescued late, and with way too much uh, blood. On, in that instance, I mean, it's it's and and, but it doesn't always. That's for sure. And and um, but it was my point was only that I was at law school. I, I never got to see sort of the end of the story. I got to I, I got to experience the impotence and the the feeling that journalism doesn't quote work. I mean, the sense of telling a story doesn't ipso facto empower anybody to do anything or motivate them to do anything. Um, but maybe had I stayed, I would have had a different different feeling, right? Because the people who were there felt the power of those stories and that they'd finally. You know, like sand in an hourglass, like at a certain point, it, it just, there was, you know, time ran out on the Clinton administration. They felt they had to do something. But anyway, I was in law school, so it was, to your point, it was when, surreal. Yes. When did you start surreal. writing your book? My second year in law school, I think it was, I, I wrote a paper for a class trying to put my Bosnia experience in some historical context. I still loved history and wanted to place it and situate it and... While I'd been in Bosnia, the Rwanda genocide had happened, but I knew nothing about it, nothing. And and yet, when I was in law school, I began reading about it. I thought, oh my gosh. When I remember being in Bosnia and being sort of pissed off that my editors were, were distracted by this thing happening in Africa, and my attitude would have been, oh, Hutu, Tutsi, like, surely they've been doing that for a long time. Like what a lot of people thought about the Balkans, and I would say, the Balkans, no, it's not like that. You know, these are families, this is not about ancient hatreds and so forth, and yet I had a, a very typical, almost tribalist, pathetic, really, reaction to what was happening in Rwanda. So when I when I had the chance to be on a campus, I just dug in and I learned. I thought, oh my God, this was the worst genocide of my lifetime. 800,000 people killed in 100 days. That was happening at the same time as Bosnia. You know, and I wanted to dig into well, how is it possible that something so clear-cut, if fast, it was very fast in fairness, but how, what was the what was the mental state of the people who were involved in making decisions or deciding not to decide or whatever. So that, plus the desire to situate Bosnia, plus a lot of reading I was doing about the Holocaust, kind of conspired to, to produce this paper for a class. And then as I kept writing, I realized, like, this book should exist, you know, and Someone I forget who said like you shouldn't write a book because it's so painful unless you can no longer live with its absence, and I just couldn't live with the absence of this book. I wanted to understand this core question about how do does America respond to genocide, and why do we think we do more than we actually do, and so that that this in a way the psychological dimension of it was every bit as interesting to me as the historical facts. A book which won the Pulitzer Prize. It would eventually. <laughs> Initially couldn't find a publisher. It took me six years to to finish. I mean, it was not... This, again, would have been an example of one of those professional choices that look ingenious in retrospect. But at the time, 
you know, people would be like, oh, yeah, you're just about to finish. Oh, sure, sure, you're about to finish. You know, it was I was like one of those Ph.D. Yes, candidates, yeah. you know, who's like, no, no, next year, really. So it was not – my mother actually joked at the time. I don't know if she remembers this, but she joked that my title, A Problem from Hell, was actually my – description of my own experience writing the book like that the book was my problem from hell her problem from hell as well so and but then yeah and then obama got his hands on the book the book was celebrated in a way that nobody would have anticipated i mean you know it, and it, it it just hit at a moment post 9/11 so people were interested in foreign affairs just as the us was contemplating invading iraq um and there was a big Iraq section to what I had done. So some people were exploiting what was in the book and saying, like Dick Cheney was invoking the gassing of the Kurds, which I had invoked, I had documented in the book. Um, but others were kind of looking to to look critically at American foreign policy. And this just kind of slotted in at a time. And, and what was very gratifying and very surprising was young people in the U.S. and the way this book exploded on college campuses. I mean, exploded. You, I'd go to a, a campus in middle America, you know, in Idaho or something, and you'd see college students, college freshmen, 19-year-olds, 18-year-olds, with this 600-page genocide book marked up with Post-its and, you know, different colored pens and, you know, carrying it around so like it was it, Jack it, Kerouac it or something. It becomes very obvious why Barack Obama saw this book as a very young senator and thought, goodness, this is, I need to see this woman. So he rings you and asks you to do yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, you could look at it that way, but he was the only senator who called me. So <laughs> okay, it, wasn't that, that. <laughs> it wasn't that, uh, it wasn't that common. I mean, young people was one thing and he was young, but he was, you know, an adult. I mean, it, I, anyway, he was elected in November 2004. It was the same year that John Kerry was defeated by George W. Bush, who, was, who got elected to a second term. I was crushed by that outcome, although I confess I am now nostalgic uh, for George W. Bush and his people. <laughs> Which we all understand. Yeah, I, I know. Even Ireland is, is, is yeah. nostalgic. We're all mm-hmm. going through that process, grieving um, and remembering. But... Uh, but Barack Obama was this bright spot. But in a million years, again, the idea that I would find my way into some connection to him. When I watched his speech, I didn't know him. I didn't know anybody who knew him. But I knew he was the great the great hope of the Democratic Party from the minute I saw that 2004 speech. So then in 2005, someone from his office reached out and said he'd like to have dinner the next time you're in Washington. And it wasn't just me. He was cultivating relationships because he was trying to... to kind of bury himself the first year instead of being, you know, this vaunted hope he wanted to to be a serious person. He wanted to dig in to uh, what it was, what was his theory of the case as to how he, especially from the Senate, how he was going to change anything. So for the first year I was, I went down and I, and I worked in his office. He was working on a book, Audacity of Hope, his second book. And I helped him on the book and we had long conversations in the night about issues of the use of force, torture, the Constitution, which was we thought was being eroded again yes. by comparison today, it was yeah. in fine form. Um, <laughs> but uh, but it was it was like a it was a for me I was very educated by being in the Congress and seeing what gridlock was like and how I'd expected to 
learn about how one branch of government worked. Instead, I really only learned that year about how it didn't work, which was, you know, very disappointing. And, and the way it didn't work back then is way more functional than, than the way it is today. I mean, it's even more polarized today. So just to leap forward a little bit, sure. um, you, you're working on the Obama campaign. You commit the little blooper regarding Hillary. Yeah, um, terrible. You see, we're very fond of Hillary in I these know, parts, you as be. you know. Yes, yeah, we should be. We all should <laughs> and be. I heard. I did hear you explaining that actually that's basically a loss of temper, and you were lashing out at the yeah. campaign at the time. You were campaigning. You were on. You were obviously on Obama's uh, side. Big side. Time. Yeah. Um, and the, the Hillary team were launching cam- uh, attack ads. I gather is that sure. what? And well, one s- of them was against a friend of mine. Yeah, uh, Austin Goolsby, who had been accused by. The, their campaign of having gone to the Canadians and said, don't worry about anything we say about free trade in the campaign. What we'll really do is, you know, be big free trade promoters, you know, so the kind of whisper, what people are very skeptical about in politics, understandably. And so Austin, you know, called me up panicked and just saying, ah, you know, everybody's mad at me. <laughs> um, he's my friend, you know, um, and is a brilliant economist and would become one of Obama's top economics advisors at the White House. But the irony was that he called me looking for media advice <laughs> because I was a former journalist and also I knew Obama well, as did he. He'd known Obama a long time. And so I gave him my my refined, you know, judgment then promptly sat back down with a reporter with whom I basically finished it from from memory had finished an interview with on on my book that had just come out on Sergio Vera de Mello. I was just on a book tour totally apart from the campaign, and she kind of was like, "What was that all about?" And I said, "Ah," and then I you know went off, and you know it's a lesson really about how, especially as a parent, it's a good good reminder. You can just say things like what my husband would call your system one, your reflexive system. You're saying things without deliberation, things you can't even if, – if, if the tape is played back to you, you're like, that, that can't be. I couldn't have said that. And that's how I felt about it. it was and so, you said Hillary's a monster. I said Hillary's a monster, but I said other things. I mean, I was just – I just went off. Um, and she kept her tape recording running, her tape recorder running, and I kind of realized that. And I said, oh, it's, obviously this is off the record. And um, – but it it she thought she had a scoop and and uh, published it and it was a pretty crushing um, period. I mean, a because I had to resign from the Obama campaign. I love 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 being on that team and being part of that campaign. But b and equal to that, I, I was obsessed with the fact that she thought I thought that about her. <laughs> So I would just everyone I met who knew someone who knew her, I'd be like, just whatever you do. Like I'm in, I'm living in obscurity. In fact, Cass, then my now husband, took advantage of this period where I was unemployed and, and vulnerable. And, and, were you? And vulnerable, <laughs> and he decided to propose. Ooh, <laughs> yeah. So with no, none of my usual defenses uh, up because I was basically catatonic for the next month. Uh, I kind of was like, all right, whatever, sure. You know, why not? And so we, we, we got married. It was the best thing I ever did. So this was all a big blessing, I guess. Sarah Goss was still working. Yeah. Were you furiously sending off little notes to Hillary saying, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry? Or how did you deal with it? Cass knew someone who was very close to her. And so the, at the very, you know, there was the public apology. I did that. And then I went up. I was on this godforsaken book tour. So I had the day I resigned, I was giving a talk in Belfast. And... 
you know, I never have had press stalkers really, but but suddenly because I was a global scandal, there I was walking into the university in Belfast, and like these RTE guys are there with their little cameras, and they were so sweet, you know, so different than America. They were so apologetic. I'm so sorry, I have to do this. <laughs> But why did you do this, you know? And so I answer, like in America, it would have been, you know, one of those mob scenes. But um, so I answered and apologized that way. But then I got her private private notes. And then Cass and I did get married that summer of 08 in Kerry. And Richard Holbrook, who was very close to, to now Secretary Clinton, then Senator Clinton, um, yeah, I remember he helped, He passed away, unfortunately, in the middle of the Obama administration. Devastating loss for our country and, and for me. He was a great friend. But he, I remember he just took my hand and he said, I have, I have a great wedding present for you. And I, and I, this was right after my wedding. It was the day after. And, you know, I said, well, what is it? Like, <laughs> as Obama later said when I told him the story, he said, you know, most people get toasters. But he, holding my hand, he said, um, Hillary's agreed to, to meet you. <laughs> yeah, and I was so pleased because no matter whatever my public apologies, whatever the letter that I sent through this advisor that was my more heartfelt behind the scenes thing at the time, like I knew because of what I said that of course she would think I thought that, um, which is, you know, the fact that she thought I thought that wouldn't have mattered so much to her, but it, I just wanted, it was, I was so adamant that she know that she's like this iconic woman in my life who did these amazing things and, like, blazed the trail for so many of us. So I just wanted to have a chance to convey that. So sure enough, my wedding present was not a toaster, but was uh, to sit down. Richard facilitated this this meeting, you know, in the, in the summer, I guess, of two, 2008, so about four or five months after my transgression. And, of course, she benefited from that as well because you ended up working for her, didn't you? In the, in the, I hope she benefited. I mean, I think, I think that was a meeting... It was a generous meeting on her part. I don't, I don't know how much she got out of the meeting, but it gave me a chance to, to just look her in the eyes and just tell her that, you know, how, how genuinely sorry I was all those months later. And she was out of the campaign, so it didn't. Nobody was thinking that she was going to end up in the Obama administration. So, again, this was not a Machiavellian, you know. Let me. It was more just a personal, you know, for someone who'd done so much uh, for women, for human rights, for kids. I just wanted to to be able to. So to she tell managed to let smart. it go. She was able to say, "Let yeah. it go, move on." Are you able to she do had, that generally? Are are you made like that? Uh, I it depends. I mean, I, I guess I'm I'm more thin skinned than I should be, um, in the sense of when I get criticized, I always ask myself, "Is it is it valid?" Like I don't, you know, my my when when something is super unfair i can see that that's ridiculous but if if someone for instance during the obama administration i was criticized a lot for not resigning because i'd written this book on mass atrocities and then syria was happening and i definitely took those calls in the wall street journal and other places for my resignation i took those very seriously I was like, well, you know is this you know am i a big hypocrite you know is this is this a serious charge should i you know, would it, what is my own sort of cost-benefit? Just um, remind our listeners, uh, Ambassador, what they were demanding a resignation for. Just, for, I think, a sense that it was hypocritical to have written, you know, a kind of Bible on America's failure to prevent atrocities and then to be out defending a policy that was failing to prevent atrocities. I think that was 
the upshot of it, if I remember. Uh, but I wouldn't be the best at reconstructing their argument because I, I, again, in the end, didn't think it was it was fair. But um, but I did think it was valid for them to be making it. I mean, I had I had made an argument over the years about people in circumstances like mine uh, who resigned. I had celebrated people who had resigned. I had questioned why others hadn't, like during the Rwanda genocide, nobody resigned. And so I thought it was, I thought it was fair. And it, it certainly kept me self-aware. You know, when you go into these big, fancy jobs, it can be easy to, to lose sight of the actual scoreboard in the real world, like what you are actually doing for people. It, it, you can get, you know, I had a big security detail, sirens, I lived in the Waldorf Astoria, you know, and I was always very conscious of the risk that the trappings would, um, you know, in effect, blind me and or the sense of um, a, a kind of false necessity of, of, oh, well, but I'm playing such an important role in these meetings and that, that I wouldn't be measuring, in fact, whether I was playing an important role by what I was actually achieving in the world. So I, I, I think I did a decent job, though, for four years, pushing and, and myself just, to answer yes. that question. And, and just think. let me ask you just, just, just briefly about the famous, Obama's famous red line and, and sure. the fact that he didn't cross it in the end. And in some ways, does that, does that keep you awake at night? Do you think, what if... I definitely think what if, you know, I don't know if it's like I, my Irish pragmatism, you know, just, but I, I do live in the present. So my what if is, you know, we, 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 you know, had we bombed, would that have shifted a tectonic plate? on the ground in a way where then we would have had diplomatic momentum that we could have, Secretary Kerry, you know, backed by me and the rest of the team that we might have taken advantage of. I absolutely ask myself that question. I, I don't, I, I think people who don't should. Um, but what keeps me up at night is not that, because that's past. What keeps me up at night is, you know, images of kids getting gassed and hospitals getting struck and children getting starved. And, you know, what keeps me up at night is the ongoing carnage in a way, it doesn't do any good to to wonder, you know, if if Congress had been more supportive or if I had been able to convince the Secretary General to remove some UN inspectors who were on the ground. That was one of the things that delayed the use of force, is that the inspectors just hung around trying, you know, in effect trying to prevent the use of force, I think. I mean, for, so from a if you if you were opposed Obama bombing in Syria, as a lot of people did, what the Secretary General and his team did was was important. I mean, it delayed the use of force, and then this Putin uh, overture happened around the destruction of the chemical weapons program. Uh, if you believe that the use of force was the one tool that hadn't been tried and that um, Assad was going to keep acting with impunity once the international community's attention veered away, as it inevitably would, then that delay... Uh, was fatal. And I've so, seen you say that perhaps the focus was overly beamed on Iran at the time. You were doing some very important work with Iran, obviously, and the, the nuclear. Um, I, I, here's what I've said, because there's two, two different versions of that. So some people believe that we were sort of, um, 
that we were trying to get Iran to make big concessions in the nuclear file, and therefore that Obama made a judgment that he didn't want to almost alienate Iran in order to use... That's false, as far as I can tell, at least on the basis of every meeting I ever had with the president. What I was saying was something a little different, which was that in terms of the bandwidth and that just the, the time and the energy, and this is for people like John Kerry, who the amount of time they had in every day was like 20 hours. I mean, the guy never slept like for the four years I worked with him. But when he when he was all in doing the Iran diplomacy, yes, he was on the phone doing Syria diplomacy at the same time, but to go and park himself in Vienna as he did for that extended period to, to close out the Iran nuclear deal, which is so important to avoid war uh, and to take away Iran's pathways to a nuclear weapon, you know, that occupied a lot of diplomatic bandwidth. And he would end up digging in in just that kind of way to Syria the last couple of years. But my only point was I wish we could have cloned him and had him be doing the Iran diplomacy in that way and the Syria diplomacy at that time in, in a similar way. But the system does get overloaded, which is of no consolation whatsoever to Syrian families who are, who are going through no. this conflict. And of course, it's got immeasurably worse, and the State Department is so under-resourced at this stage and all that sort of thing. I don't even know if they have a Syria policy. I couldn't tell you what America's policy towards Syria is today. I mean, in fairness, ours wasn't pretty either, but this is of a degree of inattentiveness when the strategic and the humanitarian toll is off the charts. I presume you've been watching... President Trump's progress around... around Is that um, the word? <laughs> that's a very good question. <laughs> he's, so lately he's with uh, Duterte. Um, yeah. He's been, he's done the rounds. BFF. He's BFF. Are you in despair? No, but that's not in my genes. Um, no, I, I see the checks and balances kicking in. Not enough. I mean, in the sense that, like, he is managing to do great damage. Don't get me wrong. But something amazing has been triggered by his um, vulgarity and cruelty. Number one, more young people are running for office than ever have. Number two, more women. Emily's List, which is this organization that kind of cultivates women candidates, reported, I think just a couple weeks ago, that more than 20,000 women uh, have approached them about running for office at the local level or the state level. Now 20,000, it's hard to put that number in context. It's a record for Emily's List. They've existed for more than three decades. The prior record was, I think, 962. So you're basically looking at a 20-fold increase in women's participation, and half of those women are under 45. I see colleagues of mine who worked at the State Department who've had to flee because they actually believe in diplomacy, and the current administration is not clear they do. Um, themselves, like making themselves vulnerable, going back to where they went to high school and throwing themselves into the fire. And it's, it's, that's amazing. Number three, the courts, you know, which, which have not um, blocked everything, of course, but they've blocked the transgender, the effort to throw transgender soldiers out of the military, which was just a gratuitous, you know, act of cruelty where the general's were like, like everything was fine, no one was complaining, and it was like, let me just do something mean to people today. While we're on that plane, um, the whole attack on Planned Parenthood and and all of that, the UN obviously takes a stand on that sort of thing. Um, 
I mean, you know, we have our own troubles in this country trying yeah. to repeal the Eighth Amendment. Yeah, of that. course. Have, are, you, are you familiar with that? I'm, I'm familiar with it, yeah. I have cousins and family members who are very involved. In are the they? Age. In yeah. the repeal the Eighth yeah. campaign? Yeah. So... In many ways, are we seen to be an absolute outlier from that point of view? <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it, I think it's hard globally for some people to reconcile being the first country to have a referendum that, that legalized gay marriage, which was, of course, not something I ever would have expected Ireland to be the first country to do, but is an amazing testament to the sort of pluralism and human rights sensibility of the people here. That was just such an extraordinary day. Um, you know, and the in effect the need the need to repeal the eighth, um, but people are also familiar with the you know what why with, with the traditions here that that have made divorce slow to go, contraception slow to come, <laughs> you know, and now uh, the repeal of the eighth campaign something still outstanding. So do you get the impression it's just a matter of time? Feels like it, but I don't I don't know enough. Yeah, but you would be a supporter yourself of the of the repeal movement. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Now, um, one of the things I was going to say, but it goes back to that sense of despair that many of us have here, is that view of the world as being, having, in spite of what, what you just said about all the signs of hope and the Virginia state elections, that sort of thing, which is wonderful. But the sense of uh, machismo, bursting testosterone, testosterone around the world, you know, Duterte, Zuma, Emperor Xi, you know, um, Putin 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 Putin, 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 Assad, um, all of that. I don't I mean, know how much testosterone he's got, but I mean, one doesn't see that in the same way. But but uh, certainly brutality. Should, should we be very with your great overview of history? Is this just a blip? Are we just looking? Are we just focusing in on these guys because we happen to see them on cable news all day, or has it got worse? Oh, it's definitely gotten worse. But and and I think they're mutually reinforcing there there's a bit of a contagion each gives the other a, a greater sense of impunity and you know and remember putin's objective in our election according to the intelligence community was not actually to help um trump win he was reading the same polls the rest of us were re- putin this is me extrapolating but he he the our assessment is that he didn't think that Trump was in a position to win, even with Russian help. But his objective was to sow discord in our democracy and to and to taint Secretary Clinton so when she became president, she'd be a weaker figure. But, you know, these ads like stoking racial unrest and pitting, you know, fake news that pits one part of our country against another and, like, circulating these lies, it was all, you know, about... Uh, fostering division. And I think what the club of a quasi-authoritarian figures, even if Trump is kind of, if he curses the the darkness of having been, you know, he's the one who's stuck in a democracy, right? So he's the one who's, you know, almost every day despairing that like, you know, he can't get involved in the Department of Justice and he can't get rid of these judges and he, he can't make you know, Congress or even his own party bend to his will. Like he's he's the one of the club you mentioned who's the most constrained, mercifully. Um, but I think that that club, you know, there is a sense among them, whether it's articulated or not, I don't know. But that this is a different model. You know that this and that and that it's you know both again feeds on itself, but it's also a symptom of a, you know a sense in large 
parts of the world that the democratic model, um, you know, has resulted in or been accompanied by large inequalities that people are being left behind. Let's talk about the importance of having female a female presence at these yeah. round tables and how that kind of regressed when you were in the UN. <laughs> yes. Oh, it wasn't my fault, but the no, um, <laughs> no it, I mean it went up and down and you but you're right. By the end I was one of uh 15 ambassadors sitting on the UN Security Council um who was a woman. Now, we in my time there we experienced what it was like to have five women ambassadors representing five countries out of the 15. So a third, that was the high water mark in the 70 then 70 year history of the UN. But being one, I mean what I you know, what really struck me when I was sitting on that horseshoe especially in the public sessions was when these school tours would come in and the kids would just, you know, be up in the gallery looking down and I'd be looking up uh, to avoid listening to my Russian counterpart, <laughs> perhaps. Um, and, who was a, uh, actually, oh, you loved, uh, actually. I, I did love him. Yes. He was a great, great colleague and friend of mine, but, but also representing the most loathsome uh, policies imaginable. But I looked up and there are these kids and there's the girls looking down and seeing this as normal, one out of 15 in 2016. Um, but there was also the boys, right? It, 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 you know, what you see affects what your expectations are for yourself, for your classmates, et cetera. So I was, I'd never been one, not, not because I didn't think symbols mattered, but just I'd never been, spent a lot of time thinking about symbols, to be honest, before I was in my UN role. And both in the positive, I got a ton of feedback from young women um, and, and older women even about how public and transparent I was about my juggle with my kids. And I had all the support in the world. You know, I had a nanny, an amazing woman who moved with us from Washington to New York without whom there's no way I could have done my job, at least at the level that I, that I tried to do it. But I was very, my kids were everywhere. They were at my receptions, you know, if I had even negotiations in my apartment, sometimes my daughter would be coming in saying, where's Blue Bear? Where's Blue Bear? You know, and I'd be like, just one sec uh, to the Chinese ambassador, whoever. Um, and, but I got a lot of positive feedback, you know, that it was just showing that it could be done that it, and, and even showing the kind of warts of it. And the inelegance and chaos of it was itself it rendered it accessible. So that was a positive kind of symbolic um, transparency or whatever that that I was able to take advantage of and, and get some feedback on. But then I, I was also acutely aware of the negative, you know, of when we, I was the only woman in the room, or there was a very famous photo actually of the of the Obama White House where it was during, I think, the, a big economic crisis where Congress was refusing to raise what's called the debt ceiling. And Obama was having a meeting with his top advisors in the Washington Post. I think it was the Washington Post. Without thinking about it, just published this photo of Obama sitting in his oval chair facing a phalanx of his advisors. And I, I don't remember the exact number. I think it was around 13. And it was all men. Now, not all white men. You know, it was a more diverse... Uh, assortment of men, but nonetheless it was all men, and so that was that got a lot of attention, you know, as a kind of metaphor for the the boys' club, and and there was a certain amount of like a certain fraternity feeling, you might say, or locker room feeling at the White House in those days. 
But then what made it worse was someone from the White House came forward and said, oh, no, 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 it's not all men. There's Valerie Jarrett's leg. There's, there's, her leg is behind, is behind, I forget who it was, but, you know, if you just look carefully, I think it was behind Dan Pfeiffer, you'll see her black tight, like her knee is there. And it just, so Jody Cantor for the New York Times, who's done all this work on Harvey Weinstein exposing this stuff, but she tweeted some, some version of, you know, Valerie Jarrett's leg as metaphor. But the fact that, some would would think that that would be ameliorative to come out and be like, no, 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 no her leg, <laughs> like check out her leg. So I'm much more conscious of being a woman, a professional woman now than I would have been when I was a journalist or a professor, you know, just Which doing Which is kind of thing. shocking in a sense, because most people as they get old, they say, oh, you know, a lot of women tend to pull the ladder up behind them, apart from the mm. likes of Madeleine Albright, who I gather oh, was quite, awesome. a, quite a mentor for you. Um, you used not self-identify as a feminist, so you've you've come you've yeah. you've come on a bit of a journey. Yeah, I think my husband, who's who's Jewish, says you know was just asked to hear on a radio show for the first time ever, like what's it like to be Jewish, <laughs> and uh, and he said you know he was raised with the Easter Bunny and Christmas trees and stuff, so he doesn't really think in those ways. I mean, he just you know, and and we're raising our kids Catholic and. But he said, you know, I feel most Jewish when I experience anti-Semitism or when, you know, I go visit a Holocaust memorial or like, you know, when I see this this people of whom I'm part, you know, being. And I think to some extent, I guess it was it, not to, to draw an inapt analogy, but when you are the only woman on the Security Council, when you hear men talk about sexual violence in war with great authority and dogmatism about how certain events couldn't have happened because, you know, the men who were accused of rape would have had their wives to come home to. So why would they? I mean, it's crazy. Or to see those girls and maybe to have a daughter myself, this little fireplug uh, little girl I have. And, and, and to even to see myself, this is terrible, but as a parent, you know, playing so many sports with my son and then you know, going and buying the arts and crafts for my daughter and, you know, not even, I mean, just so without any consciousness telling my daughter how beautiful she looks, like an idiot, <laughs> you know, to, to so they're just going to want to know, am I looking We've beautiful? And if, it, you know, in other words, because you, you fall in love with your kids and so you comment on what you, you know, your your heart takes over. But I, But I'm, so as a mother trying to raise a strong, confident girl, as someone who's been in a in a big institution where I don't think women, you know, at the UN especially, are treated the same way men are, in part because there's so few. Now, I, I didn't really experience that because I was America. So I was the host country. I was the biggest donor to the UN. I was the biggest military in the world. I mean, people's ability to be dismissive of me in the way that they might have been other women ambassadors was not that great. But certainly now I'm... I'm uh, I'm very focused on the set of issues and how to, to try to be better at bringing girls up. Yeah, because one practical example I read of, of, of you um, at the UN was that you were prepared to bring in individuals to tell their stories, which is quite often regarded as just sentimental, emotional stuff. Why focus on the specific? We need stats here. Um, but you reckon that made a big difference, and that was a peculiarly female approach. Well, you know, to me, it was more a journalistic approach of just, you know, and, and frankly, it was more of a human approach because you go there 
I mean, no one who was relying on these statistics could think that anybody was being moved by them. Like, there was no force, because, you know, one man's Syria then gets overtaken by Ebola, gets overtaken by the existential threat posed by climate change, gets overtaken by what the ISIS has done to the Yazidi. I mean, so it all risked blurring together for some of these diplomats. And what I found is that if you could bring in someone who was could actually testify to what had happened to them um it it could puncture that sense of abstraction you know that could make it easier for people to look away and so during Ebola we had we weren't able to bring him because of you know the craziness of Ebola but we had a, a video conference or video screen where a health worker a Liberian health worker beamed in and just described what it was like to have no beds and to have parents coming in carrying their Ebola-stricken children and them having to literally deposit their child at the gate of a clinic that was oversubscribed. And with Ebola, you couldn't have multiple people in one space or or you wouldn't have infection control and, and it would be even worse. And for him to say that to the UN membership that was gathered, I mean, the motivation of that versus even a chart that shows that one million people will be infected within a certain time and the power of of that story of putting yourself in his shoes and imagine imagining turning away a, a parent it's just it was it shook the world and and so too to have not just me fighting with my russian counterpart about whether assad had gassed these kids but to have the doctors come in and with their video and and just you know was the russians doing their thing and and making stuff up for him to say i'm, I'm sorry i was there like this is what it looked like this is a photo I'm vouching to you, I am a medical professional, like I do not tell so lies. So this is the value of the female perspective. And now ambassador a year on from Hillary's terrible loss. No. And when you held a party in your home, I gather, to celebrate the glass ceiling coming down, is that, is that true? Yeah, that was my best idea that I ever had, was, was on election night to bring all the women ambassadors together. Not, not just that, to bring them together with Madeleine Albright, myself, Gloria Steinem, that was a great idea. Um, but the best idea, even better than that, was to invite a, a film crew. So you can catch the movie. It's called The Final Year, about Obama's last year of diplomacy. And that is the culminating scene, because they were present as the world, uh, our world, fell apart. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a brutal That's night. That's more shocking than I expect. <laughs> you know, Just a, a, a font of great ideas here. <laughs> Have you embarked on the memoir? You're, you're writing a memoir. I am trying. I'm yes. trying. Is this, is this the Samantha Power audacity of hope? Is this a prelude to a, a run at some powerful office? Oh, I see. No, no, yes. no, no, no. I don't, well, I don't know. Who knows? I, I wouldn't rule out, uh, certainly. I'd love to go back into public service in some fashion, but um, I am very focused on how, how absent I and my husband were, because my husband was living in Boston the last four years while I was in New York, and I was, you know, in negotiations till all hours of the night. So I have two, my two littles are going to have to become big before I um, go back in in the kind of way I've been I've been um, working over the, those eight years when I was with Obama. But my book is called "The Education of an Idealist." That may change, but the 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 basic set of questions are: What's it like to go from being an outsider, a critic, a, a believer in a set of principles to trying to apply those principles in a big, 
unwieldy institution. I'm also digging in a bit to my Irish past because people always ask me, you know, how does being Irish affect, you know, how you see the world? I, w- I don't have a tidy answer yet, but, uh, but I'll come back when the book is done. We look forward to it. Ambassador Samantha Power, thank you so much for talking to the Women's Podcast. You bet. Thanks for having me. What an impressive, cool woman. We're going to be watching her with interest in the years to come. That's all we have time for. Our thanks to Ambassador Power for her time and for being such an excellent interviewee. The podcast was produced by Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan, with Jennifer Ryan also on sound, the ultimate multitasker. I'm Cathy Sheridan. I'll talk to you next time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.